If you can, please turn your Bibles to page 1,157. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. So one of the great uh, American pastimes is going to the barber. Uh, and I don't know what it's like uh, in other other countries, uh, going to the barber. But in, in America, there's a whole cultural experience to to going to the barber. And and what you ex- when you go to a barber, you ex- you expect to get more than just a good haircut. Uh, you expect to get some lively conversation, right? A great barber provides lively conversation uh, along with your haircut. And I remember, uh, you know, I, I, various times going to different barbers, and I've I've actually shared this story before. I I remember going to a, a barber one time. Well, let me let me back up. Whenever I go to a barber, and it's somebody new, it's a new barber who doesn't know me. There's this this inevitability that at some point in the conversation, they're going to find out that I'm a pastor, and then for a moment things get weird, and they they tend to. There's usually a pause, and I can tell, like not just a not just a pause in the conversation, but you know the clippers get turned off, and and there's a pause in the snipping. There's just a pause, and I can tell that the gears are turning, and they're thinking to themselves, "Oh my goodness, what have I said in the last five or ten minutes?" Uh, and then usually either they completely shut down, or sometimes they'll even just start, you know, start unloading all of these questions and all this kind of stuff. And I, I remember one time I was I was at the bar, new barber, and I got into this conversation with him, and he ended up saying something along the lines of. Uh, yes, uh, but but all religions are really the same. And I, I remember hearing him say that. All religions are really the same. And I think that's the kind of thing that you hear a lot these days. Uh, all religions are the same. And I think, I suspect, and I don't want to, I don't know this barber. I didn't know the barber very well at all when he said this. Um, so I could be wrong about this. But I suspect that for him, and I think that for a lot of people, when they say that all religions are the same, um, it, their their conclusion does not stem so much from having spent rigorous amount of time studying different religions um, and reflecting upon them. As much as when we say that, it's really just um, it's really just a way to to kind of avoid confrontation. I, I think that's why people say that sort of thing. It, it's really it's really just well, you know what? I mean, uh, let's religion is controversial and. People can get really upset and heated about it. So let's, you know, if we just say that they're all the same, well, then we can avoid confrontation. And so I think a lot of people, that's really kind of what it stems from. But it does sort of raise this question, you know, is it true? Are all religions the same? And, and, the, and I, well, what I want to say here, we'll see, is that I think that just any sort of cursory evaluation 
of the world's religions and different ways of thinking, just even a cursory evaluation will reveal that they are not the same, uh, that there are some, some crucial differences. And actually, you can, however, you can take, I think, a lot of the different religions, different worldviews, and sort of boil them down to a few crucial differences. And one of the differences, and I'm just going to highlight this, N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Christian, highlights three basic worldviews within which just about everything can fit. And these worldviews, this way of categorizing them is done so by looking at how they understand the relationship between heaven and earth. How does any particular worldview understand the relationship between heaven and earth? And the first worldview option that he kind of highlights is one in which it, within this worldview, there is no distinction between heaven and earth. There's really no distinction, right? Everything uh, is, you know, physical, earthly, but everything is also divine, right? So everything is divine. I mean, you're divine, uh, I'm divine, the rocks are divine, that pew is divine. I mean, everything is, everything is sort of Everything is divine. There's, there's really no distinction, right? Everything is divine, and the divine is everything. And, and the, you know, the philosophical word for this is pantheism, pan, Greek for all, and theism, word for God. So all is God. Everything's God. God's everything, right? There's really no distinction between heaven and earth. And what's interesting, actually, is that various forms of polytheism actually really kind of emerge, in a sense, out of this pantheism, because kind of what happens is, like, if everything is divine, well, then to sort of remind yourself of it, you, you know, you might as well just start giving names to the different divine thing. Everything's divine, so the sun is divine, so let's give it a name, Ra. Uh, you know, you just start going around naming everything divine. That's why you end up with all of these gods. Because if everything is divine, then everything is a god, and so there's a sense in which even within polytheism, it, it actually can stem out of ultimately a pantheistic worldview. In fact, ancient Stoicism was a form of pantheism that in many respects was trying to... Uh, trying to pull away from this, the polytheism that had, had sort of emerged. Uh, because in many respects, you might say that, that polytheism is, uh, panth- is the marriage of pantheism and personification. It's the marriage of pantheism and personification. So everything is divine, and, and now you're going you're gonna to personify everything. Everything gets a name. Everything gets a, becomes a person. Everything becomes a god. But it's kind of all the same. It's all the divinity is just, is just sort of in everything. Right, so that's, that's one way of looking at it, that there's no distinction between heaven and earth and earth and heaven. It's all divine. That's pantheism. And actually, closely related to this is atheism. Right? Within atheism, it's, it's sort of like, uh, well, yeah, heaven and earth, they're, they're one and the same. Um, but to talk about divinity is a little bit like is about as meaningless as giving everybody in your seventh grade soccer team a trophy. If everybody gets a trophy, then it's completely meaningless that you got a trophy in the first place. And if everything is divine, then why even bother talking about divinity at the first place? So atheism is sort of very similarly related to pantheism. In fact, I'd say that pantheism is sort of atheism for right-brained people. Pantheism is atheism for right-brained people because you know, the, the right brain people can't handle the, the cold rationalism of the left brain people. You know, it's just, it's just earth, you know. So it's got to be a little something more. So, so it's just, well, then everything's kind of divine, right? So, so pantheism is atheism for right brain people. But as you can see, it's all kind of the same because heaven and earth, there's no distinction. 
So that's one, one potential worldview. Then on the other side is kind of the complete opposite of this. And this is that heaven and earth are completely distinct. They're just, they're totally distinct. And, and so if there is a God, well, maybe he created everything. Um, but if he did, he, he's not really interested in being involved anymore. He's a little bit like my son who will build something out of Legos or something. He'll build it. And then he gets totally not interested, and he goes off and does something else. He just sort of leaves it there. So maybe, maybe God made everything. I, I, you know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But even if he's there, he, he doesn't intervene. I mean, he's not present. And so certainly if you subscribe to this view, this is in the ancient world, this was what Epicureanism was. And in the modern world, this is where deism kind of is sort of a similar version as deism in the modern world. And it's this idea that, well, okay, there's a God, but he doesn't really do anything. So there's not really a whole lot of point in going to church, not really a whole lot of point in praying, and not really a whole lot of point in seeking this God out because he doesn't really do anything anyways. So you've got these two different options, and they're completely the opposite. So the question is, we might say is, well, where does the God of the Bible fit into this? Does, Does the God of the Bible fit into either one of these two particular options? And right from the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, the first verse on the first The first verse of the first book in the Bible, right off the start there, ruled out pantheism, this idea that heaven and earth are one, right? Because the first verse is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God God created the heavens and the earth. So right there, right there with that first verse, it rules out this pantheism. In fact, I would say that that is really in, in one sense, the most significant thing that's going on in Genesis 1. You see, in, in, in modern culture, modern Christianity, we get all caught up in the, this question of how did God create things? When we read Genesis 1 and 2, how did he create these things? And, and then you get all these, you know, these debates, like is it six literal days? Is, are they not literal days? And all of this, and to be completely honest with you, I think when we get focused in on that, we're focusing in on the, the, the trees and we're missing the forest, right, the forest for the trees kind of thing here. We're, we're zooming in on, on something that, in the end, it's not really even the, the point here, Wh- whatever it may be, and we can debate that all we like, but in the end, it's not so much a question of how God created things, but simply that he created things. And, and so this, in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, just, just is like a canon across the bow of ancient pantheistic polytheism, saying, no, no, God... God is distinct. He created everything. Now, if you just leave it there with Genesis 1-1, then you might say, okay, well, then maybe this God of the Bible is, is this deistic sort of God, right? He creates everything, and then he just, he's not really interested anymore. Doesn't, pay, doesn't, doesn't intervene, doesn't get involved. Well, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, because, because here again, if we just leave it with Genesis 1, we might very comfortably say, yeah, God created everything. I believe in God. I believe God created everything. Uh, but I'm not really interested in, in, you know, pursuing him or seeking him out because he doesn't really seem to be interested in what is going on. We come to Exodus 3, and we see a very different picture. Exodus 3, this is page 90 or 56 of your pew Bibles, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush 
was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. After this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at the Lord. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So what do we have here? You see, right here in Exodus 3, a third worldview just sort of explodes on the scene. This, This is a God who is distinct from creation. Heaven and earth are not the same. God created the earthly realm. But this is a God that doesn't just sit up there and doesn't care what's going on. This is a God who intervenes. If there's anything that I would want to leave with you this morning is that God cares about what is going on in your life. God is not just just sitting up there uh, uninterested. He's not just sitting up there with his head turned the other way. What we find here in Exodus 3 is this is just one example over and over again in the Bible of God seeing his people in need and him coming towards them. Whatever you're facing, whatever your challenges may be, whether it's health challenges or challenges at work or challenges in your marriage or whatever it may be, what I want you to know is that the God of the Bible is a God who cares very deeply and desires to intervene. Now, the way in which God does it and when he does it, how he does it, that's all. There's mystery to that. It doesn't always look exactly like what you want it to look like. But what we see over and over again is that God is a God who cares, and he reaches down, and he, and he intervenes. Of course, well, we might just think, well, well, is this kind of just slipping back into um, sort of pantheism, right? I mean, now he's like in a bush here, right? So maybe this is just kind of... You know, now we're slipping the other direction towards Pantheon. What's interesting, though, is then if you look a few verses later, when Moses asks God in verse 13, he says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and to you, and they ask me, what is his name, and what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am. Well, thanks. That's really helpful. That's a great, I am. And what is he saying here? God is saying, look, You can't really give me a name. I just am. You can't give me a name because to give me a name is to quantify me. You give names to created things. Because you can quantify a created thing, but you can't quantify me. You can't really name me because I'm the one that created the nameable. So, so once again, we see this tension right here. No, this is not slipping back. And actually, the fact that he's not part of creation is really important for the whole notion that he might be able to help us in the first place. You know, if God's just part of the whole system, if he's just part of creation, then his ability to help is going to be limited. I mean, it's going to be a little bit like, let's put it this way, nobody on the Titanic could save anybody on the Titanic. 
right? I mean, you, if you're on it, you're on the ship going down. The only way anybody's going to get helped is if something from the outside comes in. You see, our hope that God can, can rescue and deliver us is precisely because he's, he's not part of the creation. He stands outside of it, and that's actually what enables him to be able to reach in and to intervene. So we see that the God of the Bible, this third world view, just explodes onto the scene that, that the God of the Bible is, it's not pantheism. It's not that heaven and earth are one and the same. But on the other hand, it's not that heaven and earth are completely separate. It's that God created everything, but he intervenes. He comes into our lives. And, and so then the question that is raised, and this is a question that then comes up really throughout the Old Testament. So this is a really basic question, really kind of basic way of understanding what's going on in the Old Testament is simply this. What do you do when God shows up? What do you do when God intervenes? What do you do when God shows up at your doorstep? What do you do? And the answer, this is going to sound silly at first. <laughs> this is going to sound silly at first. But what do you do when, when God shows up? Here's what you do. You give God a place to stay. You give him a place to stay. And actually, you see, in the ancient Near East, uh, they prized hospitality above just about any value. I mean, they valued hospitality as, as, in terms of a virtue, there is nothing more virtuous than being hospitable in the ancient Near East. And it sort of made sense because sort of back then, you know, when people would travel, travel was incredibly difficult. It usually involved a significant amount of walking. And there, you know, you couldn't, you know, hey, Siri, where's the nearest motel? It's a little bit harder to find accommodations. And so they they, it was, there's sort of this cultural expectation throughout much of the ancient Near East that if there's somebody coming through, there's a visitor coming through, well, you've got to provide for them. You've, and, and you're going to make great sacrifices in order to care for them. In fact, and, and listen, I'll use this as an example. Uh, this, this will maybe help to explain what I'm telling you right now about this value of hospitality will perhaps help to explain, though it certainly will not justify one of the most bizarre passages of the Bible. And that is, some of you know, may remember the story of Lot in Sodom when there he has these two guests that are staying at his house. And these two guests are staying at his house. And uh, the, the, the people of Sodom come and they ask him to hand over those men to him. They, they want to do terrible things to these guests. And what does, what does Lot do? And this is, I'm not justifying this, okay? That's, this is another whole sermon here. But what does, he, what does he do? He hands them his daughters. He gives them his daughters. Now, the Bible certainly is not uh, affirming Lot in, in doing that behavior. It just kind of narrates that that's what takes place. And certainly, that, that's, I'm not here to justify that at all. But you've got, at least you've got to see a little bit where this is coming from, is that they prized hospitality so much. They're willing to, to give of their own lives, give of their family. Uh, again, this is extreme. But you can see it's this entire way of thinking that when somebody shows up, at your house, you, you do whatever is necessary to provide hospitality for them. And so what do, you, what do you do when the Spirit of God shows up? You give them a place to stay. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, one of the most dominant themes in the Old Testament is the temple. The temple. And you may have wondered when you read through the, the Old Testament, you read about the tabernacle in Exodus and you read, uh, you read about the temple in First Kings. 
And it's like, it just goes on and on and on and on with this description. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the dimensions of the rooms, the materials that should be used, the, the number of hooks and loops for the poles, for the curtains. I mean, it just goes on and on. All the furnishings, the dimensions of the furnishings, the kind of furnishings and the materials that be, sh- should be used to them. And you're just like, why? What is this? And it's communicating the, the, how important it was when God shows up, you provide for him a place to stay. And, and, of course, the Israelites weren't the only ones to, to build temples. In the ancient Near East, there's lots of people building temples. But, I mean, for most of the ancient Near East, you're, you're building a temple for a God who's really not that much different than you. I mean, he's a little, you know, he's a little bit more than you. But, but, again, he's kind of part of the system, right? And, and, actually, in the ancient Near East, most of the time when you're building a temple for a God, it's really kind of like building a restaurant is really <laughs> kind of what it was. That the, basically the mindset was, well, we just feed the gods, and that, that's... For whatever reason, the gods needed to be fed. Uh, and so you would feed them with your sacrifices, and that would just appease them so that they wouldn't you know, do terrible things to your family. But that's really what it was. It was, it was like just you know, creating a restaurant to feed them. But you find something very different in, in, in the Scriptures here. You find, for example, what, what David says in his psalm. Right? You'd never find this right here in, in some other uh, ancient Near Eastern religion. You wouldn't find anything quite like this. This is what he says about the temple. He says, one thing I ask of the Lord, This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You see, the ancient Israelites, they understood they weren't just entertaining, feeding, appeasing some God. They were entering into the very place where heaven and earth would intersect. They weren't entertaining some God who's just kind of like them, part of within the system. No, they, they were coming into the presence of God himself. They were coming into the presence of the God who created everything. They were entering into the very place where heaven and earth intersect. So this leads us to our passage today. That's sort of an extended intro. I promise the body of the sermon isn't as long as the introduction was. But that helps to set the context for what's going on here in Ephesians. It helps us to see the magnitude of, of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. Listen to what he says here. He's saying, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. He's talking about the Gentiles here. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, what's going on here? We need to understand that at the very heart of the Christian faith, at the very heart of the Christian faith, is that Jesus himself has become the permanent intersection place between heaven and earth. The person of Jesus has become the place where heaven and earth intersect. That Jesus himself has become the temple. And this is why you find throughout Jesus' ministry these weird sort of temple themes that are emerging and you, you find Jesus doing things that were supposed to be done at the temple or part of the temple system. We find Jesus forgiving people's sin. 
And the religious leaders are all like, wait a minute, what are you doing forgiving sin? That's for the priests that are part of the temple system. They're the ones that are supposed to forgive sin. And Jesus is going around healing people. And they're like, wait a minute, if you, got healed, if you want to get healed, you, you go to the temple. That's where you go to get healed. And what's it communicating? It's communicating that Jesus... Jesus has become the temple. Jesus has become the intersection point between heaven and earth. But Paul takes it one step further. And he says that when we place our faith in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, we become the temple ourselves. When we are united with Christ through faith, we become the temple. We become the very place where heaven and earth intersect. Listen listen to this. The gospel isn't just saying that we can now enter into the presence of God. Of course, it is saying that too. Of course, it's saying that we can now enter more fully into the presence of God. Because actually, one of the things that you also discover as you read through the Old Testament scriptures is that though they would build the temple and they could come into the presence of God, they could only get so close. They, they couldn't get all the way in. They couldn't get into the Holy of Holies, the very, the very center of the temple. Nobody could go in there. Only once a year, the high priest could go in there. And the reason why nobody could go in there is because, honestly, it was just too dangerous to go in there. Because to stand before a holy God is it, it's just dangerous. It, it's almost like it's like too awesome for you to handle. Uh, let me give you a terrible analogy uh, that I don't know if you'll remember this and not remember the point. But uh, my wife loves the, the guitarist Johnny Lang, blues guitarist, loves Johnny Lang. And just thinks he is awesome. Uh, but the problem is, that she thinks he's so awesome that the first couple of times when we would go to his concerts, she'd get so excited she got sick. She did, and she like she's like sick, and she'd like have to leave, and she couldn't enjoy it because it was too much awesomeness. Look, listen, that's a ridiculous analogy, but that's kind of what this is saying. You can't go into the presence. It's too much awesomeness for you to handle. This is why, seriously, in the Old Testament, you find people getting too close. They get sick, and they die. Because the presence of God is just too, it's too full, it's, it's too big. You see, because at the heart of the biblical narrative is that we have turned away from God. We've, we, we walked away from God. We turned away from God. And, and actually, even just in any sort of relationship, you know this, that if you start to go in another direction from somebody else over enough time, before you know it, it's, like it's really hard to even be in, in their presence again. You don't even know how to interact anymore. And isn't that true? And the whole narrative of the Bible is that humanity has, walked, has moved away from God and we have become comfortable with a way of life that is in opposition to the way God would have us live and is really in opposition to what would really be beneficial for us. But we're so stuck in it that to even just come right back into the presence of God would, would be too much for us. Or maybe here's a better analogy. It's a little bit like a scuba diver who goes down 100 meters under the surface of the water, and that's not really where they're meant to be. They're mo- meant to be up on the surface, right? That's what they were made for. But if they're down there long enough, they can't just come right back up to the top. They can't just jump right up there. You just jump right back up to the surface, and I think like your head explodes or, or something like that. In a similar sense, we're so used to living in ways apart from God that to just come right back up that there's, it, it would be devastating for us. And so listen, listen, the heart of the gospel 
is that Jesus is like the decompression chamber. Jesus is the one that, that, that brings equilibrium. He, he just takes all of the pressure upon himself and just equalizes it out so that we can be in his presence. In other words, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus died to forgive us of our sin so that we can fully enter into the presence of God. Yeah, that, that's the heart of the gospel, but, but you see, then Paul takes it a step further. Not only can we enter into the presence of God through faith in Jesus, we can become the very place where the Spirit of God comes. We become the intersection point between heaven and earth. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that, that when we, when we gather together on a Sunday morning through faith, we become the very place where heaven and earth intersect? Not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of anything good that we've done, simply by trusting in the grace of Jesus, that when we gather together by faith, we become the very place where heaven and earth intersect. It's, it's not even, it's not, it's not this building, right? You all know the, what is it? This, this is the church. This is the steeple. Open the door. Where are the people? I don't know if I'm doing this right. <laughs> Whatever. This is, this is the church, the steeple. Open the door. Look at the people, right? Right. right? It's the people. It's the people that become the intersection point between heaven and earth. Just this past Friday, my community group got together. And we did something very mundane. We had a fat Friday party. We just ate food and had a wonderful time. We ate a bunch of food that many of us are going to give up in the next six weeks because we think maybe we shouldn't have as much of it as we've been having. And so we had this wonderful party. It's a very mundane party where we... We just, it's just mundane, just eating food, very kind of earthy thing to do. Oh, but we thanked God for it. We praised God. We said, God, thank you for this, these, this gift of food that you've given us, the gift of friends. Thank you for this gift of food and how it points to what we really need, which is you. And, and we, we took that very mundane thing, and through giving thanks to God, it became sacred. That very mundane Fat Friday community group party became a place where heaven and earth intersect. Right, when we do this, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. We mess up. We fail. We don't always, we don't always fully trust in Christ, Right? Oh, but when we do, we become that place. And you know, when, when the New Testament talks about the church as the, the temple, uses this temple imagery, it largely talks about it in, the, in this corporate sense, right? That Jesus is the cornerstone and we are all different stones in that temple and we come together to build the temple like it does here. But actually, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 6, he uses a different analogy. He says that your body is the temple. And so there's a sense which even, even by ourselves that we can be the place where heaven and earth intersect. You ever thought about that? That when you go to work and you're sitting in that very mundane meeting with maybe some very earthly people and you tend to be fairly earthly too. Oh, but in that moment, 
Can we remember that by faith in Christ, you can be the very place where heaven and earth intersect? Have you thought about that when you, when you go next door and you're talking with your neighbor as you're both shoveling your respective walks and doing very mundane things that right there in that place in your relationship with them, you can be the very place where heaven and earth intersecting in your homes, in your family, for your children, for your wife, for your husband. You can be the very place where heaven and earth intersect. Next week, we're going to start a new series. And I know some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, I, I thought we were, we were still in, the, in a series, right? We haven't finished it yet, right? We haven't finished it. We're just, we're just, we're not even to the end of the story. You've only gone through three of the acts, creation, fall, redemption. You've done the climax. You've been stuck in the climax for a little while. When are we going to get to restoration? And actually, we're going to come back to this at Easter. We're going to come back to this at Easter, but next week, we're going to start a new series. And it's just going to kind of be for six weeks. And, and, and here's what the series is. It's a series that is inviting us to come back to God. We're doing a series that is, we're going to be going through the book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple. And we're going to use this over the next six weeks as a way of inviting us to come back to God, to to acknowledge ways in which perhaps we aren't trusting in God and we, we aren't by faith trusting in Christ. And so ways in which maybe our temple has been damaged. And so it's an opportunity to turn away from those things. It's an opportunity to, it's going to be a a season in which I hope that maybe you'll you'll confess before the Lord some things in your life that maybe have a grip on you, things in your life that are pulling you away and keeping you from fully being the place where heaven and earth can intersect. I hope this will be a time when you can confess. We are actually going to have uh, out there in in the narthex, we're going to have a confession tree. You're like, what's a confession tree? Well, some of you may remember the Thanksgiving tree that Carol Thies made that we had downstairs, and it was a tree where you could come during the season of Thanksgiving, and you could, you could write things that you're thankful for, and you could just give them to the Lord. Well, Carol is taking that tree, and she's redoing it and turning it into a confession tree for this season. It's going to be an opportunity, if you want to, to go, and you'll be able to write if there are things you want to confess, you can place them on the tree. If you don't want to do that, it'll just be there to serve as a reminder for this season of confession, of coming before the Lord and acknowledging ways in which we might have allowed sin to hinder us from being the very place where heaven and earth intersect. I, I'm encouraging people in our church, encouraging our community groups to, to maybe identify those, those things and, and also uh, maybe to use the next six weeks as a time of of extra focus, extra time of prayer, extra time of study, extra time of meditation, and use this season as a time to come back. Because, see, that, that's, that's what it means to be the people of God, is to be that place where heaven and earth intersect. The whole point of this series is what? The whole point of this series is that the Bible is a story. And that means that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to understand how it fits into this overarching narrative, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And the last five weeks, we've been talking about how 
Well, Jesus is the climax, right? Jesus is the climax of that story. And, and so then what we saw, and this is the part I think that has amazed us perhaps the most, is that Jesus is the climax of the story, but then as the church, we're called to relive the climax. That we're called to, to basically repeat by the power of the Spirit in us exactly what Jesus did. And so what did we see about Jesus? Well, we saw that, that, that Jesus, well, he sought to give life to people. We saw throughout his ministry, he sought to give life back to people. Uh, we saw that Jesus died for the world. So in the last few weeks, we've seen that we're called to do the same thing. We're called to give life to people, and we're, we're called to die for the world in union with Christ. And then this week, we see again, what is it? Well, Jesus is the temple. And so if we're to relive the story, that means that we're given the privilege of being the temple. So as we go out, and even as we gather and as we go out, I would encourage you to think about that. When you go to work, when you go home, when, we, when you're with your friends, that God is giving you the opportunity to be the very place where heaven and earth intersect. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you that you... <laughs> are a God who loves us so deeply. God, we thank you for the gift of creation. God, we thank you that you stand outside all of creation. And because of that, we can trust in your control, your sovereignty over all things. God, we praise you that you are a God of salvation, that you have entered into our world and you continue to do so, Lord. God, first we come to you. We come to you with our need. We come to you with our own hurts and brokenness, Lord, and we ask for you to intervene and bring healing into our lives. And then, God, we ask that you would rebuild us. Rebuild us as a temple that increasingly can be a place where others can come and find the very place where heaven and earth intersect. We pray this in Jesus' name.